Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 54. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on January 6, 2022, in an only modestly secure, undisclosed location in New Orleans. Actually, it's the closet off the bedroom, which does a passable job of blocking out the train whistles, riverboat klaxons, birdies, jet engines, and the dude next door who plays music loudly and proudly. Crucial support for the writing of this episode was provided by the Cuban creation cigar bar on Toulouse Street in the French Quarter, which I quite recommend if you like that sort of thing. If you are new to the podcast, which with today's episode begins its second year, We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. The best way to support what we are doing here is to tell your friends, either the old-fashioned way or on your social propaganda website of choice. Well, we're truly on our way to Jamestown, which I've been telegraphing since roughly June. As I've mentioned before, I had originally assumed that the podcast series would begin with Jamestown. So the first books I read when I decided to do this in October 2020 were two of the recent more accessible volumes on the colony. Then, even when I thought to begin the series before Columbus, I wrote out a rough schedule that took me forward to Jamestown by some point last June or July. Following my muse, though, was treacherous. I kept finding other things I wanted to talk about along the way. Got a little enamored of Francis Drake. And the next thing you know, we've done 53 episodes of the History of the Americans before the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery set sail for Virginia. Not just the vast territory that Sir Walter Raleigh had penciled off as Virginia, or the specific domain that James I defined in the charter of the Virginia Company that he authorized in April 1606, but actually Virginia. If I were to analyze my own motives, which my beloved wife, who knows more than a little about psychoanalysis, often suggests I do, it probably took me 53 episodes to get to this point because it is the first subject in the history of the Americans that many of you guys, especially the Virginians out there, know more about than me. And that makes me a bit nervous. Everybody has an opinion, and usually a strongly held one, and knows a lot of factoids to back it up. That makes Jamestown a little hot to touch, but it obviously cannot be avoided. Jamestown and its legends are so important to us that freaking Disney made a movie about it. True, it is hard to imagine a more heinous interpretation of that moment in our history. But that is not my point, at least not now. My point is that there are a huge number of books on Jamestown, even very recent ones. And there's a lot of emotion tied up in arguments about what happened there. You know what I'm talking about. Well, I don't care about your petty emotional issues. That's presentism, and you can find that in lots of other places. Here's my commitment to you. I'm going to tell the Jamestown story as well as I can. That means I'm going to irritate almost everybody who wants me to prove some contemporary political point they hope to make. On April 10, 1606, James I executed the first charter of the Virginia Company of London, which authorized two colonies along the coast of today's United States, each 
to be settled by competing groups of investors. The Northern Company, promoted by the West Country Men, was directed to settle between approximately the Virginia-Maryland border on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake all the way up to the Maine-New Brunswick border. That would become the popham Sagadahawk colony on the coast of Maine, just south of today's Brunswick, the story of which we discussed in the last two episodes. The southern colony, promoted by investors from London, was authorized to settle between approximately Wilmington, North Carolina and Greenwich, Connecticut. The southern colonists would head for the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay and thereby plunge into a complex geopolitical morass that would very nearly destroy the venture. Let's pull out the wide-angle lens. In 1606, the population of the world was something like 550 million people. Two years before, England and Spain had settled the 19-year undeclared shooting war that had effectively begun with Francis Drake's massive raid in the West Indies in 1585 and 86. They remained geopolitical rivals, and the two powers had not resolved competing claims in North America. Virginia and La Florida substantially overlapped. James did not want to restart the exhausting shooting war with Spain, but neither did he want to cede the riches of North America to Philip III. His solution was to emphasize the commercial opportunities of trade and resource extraction. The old Elizabethan ambition for a privateering base against the Spanish treasure ships had died with a great queen and her war. At an even wider angle... There was a lot going on in 1606. The opening paragraph of David Price's book, Love and Hate in Jamestown, John Smith, Pocahontas, and the Start of a New Nation, gives a sense of it. Quote, In the year 1606, on a Roman tennis court, the artist Caravaggio killed an opponent after an argument over a foul call. A middle-aged mathematician named Galileo Galilei who had not yet built his first telescope, published a book of observations about the recent appearance of a supernova in the sky. Japan's first shogun, Ieyasu Togagawa, had recently begun his rule. The Dutch painter Rembrandt was born. In Oxford, Cambridge, and Canterbury, 47 scholars appointed by the king were laboring over a new translation of the scriptures, which would come to be known as the King James Bible. A new play called Macbeth opened in London. And in late December, in London's River Thames, three small ships were anchored, awaiting a voyage across the Atlantic. Those three ships were the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery. And they would take 105 men and boys to the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay to establish the Virginia Company's southern colony. Europeans had been scouting the Chesapeake for years and occasionally going ashore. They knew that it was immensely rich in wildlife, both in the water and on the land. They knew that a lot of Indians lived there, and that at least some of them were hostile to Europeans. In 1606, they still hoped that one of the rivers that flowed into it would lead to a navigable passage to the Pacific Ocean, and thence to China and the riches of Asia. They also hoped that there would be gold, silver, and pearls, since tantalizing rumors had come home with the first Roanoke colony on Drake's ships in 1586, and, as always with gold, 
hope springs eternal. In addition to the Spanish, who still asserted their claim to the Atlantic coast of today's United States, the varied and numerous Indian tribes and tribal groups who lived in the region of the Chesapeake were in fierce and often violent competition with each other. As importantly, they were well aware of Europeans and that they also belonged to tribes that were in fierce and often violent competition with each other. They knew about the Spanish. Devoted and attentive listeners will remember the brutal massacre of the Spanish Jesuits at the mouth of the Chesapeake in 1571, all the way back in episode 30. The Spanish on the Atlantic coast and the strange story of Don Luis. For reasons that will become clear, it would not hurt to go back and listen to that one in conjunction with this series on Jamestown. But for those of you whose time is worth more than mine, and that is no doubt most of you, I'll recap it in a moment. The locals also knew about the English. The lost colonists of the 1587 Roanoke colony almost certainly had integrated with the friendlier tribes on the coast of North Carolina. And there were probably English still living there in December 1606 when the three Virginia Company ships were slipping out the Thames bound for Virginia. The dominant tribal group in the area was known by this time as the Powhatans. Their chief was named Wahoon Sunnacock, who was known to the English and most Americans even today as Powhatan or the Powhatan. My grandfather, old Virginian, born in 1902, referred to him as Powhatan. I think that was the local pronunciation in the turn of the 20th century. I will refer to him as Powhatan, both because that is the name most of you know, and most importantly for me and my mumbly mouth, it's easier to pronounce. Powhatan had built up a substantial tribal group over the last 30 to 40 years and was a wise old man by 1607. He also had a close relative, maybe a brother or a cousin named Opakankanaw, who was tough as nails, would succeed Powhatan as the paramount chief and would kill a lot of English people before he died at age 99. Opakankanaw will feature prominently in the version of the Jamestown Powhatan saga that I'm going to tell. So brace yourselves for a digression. The year is 1561. I know what you're thinking. He's not going back in the timeline 50 years, is he? Yes, he is, but only for a moment. Quoting myself from episode 30, quoting some other people, the opening paragraph of a 1988 article by Charlotte Grady, professor of history at Sacred Heart University in Connecticut, sets the stage well. In September 1570, a small band of Jesuit priests sailed into an estuary of the Bahia de Santa Maria and landed in Ahakan, the Spanish names for what were later called the Chesapeake Bay and the land of Virginia. There, the Jesuits established a mission on the York River. That's less than 15 miles as the crow flies from the future site of Jamestown, by the way. Among the Algonquin inhabitants, intending to convert them to Catholicism. No soldiers accompanied these missionaries for protection. Their only means of communicating with the natives was through an interpreter, an Indian from that area who had spent some time in Mexico and Spain. We will have much opportunity to exercise patience 
was the sober observation of one of the Jesuits, Father Luis de Quiros, as he surveyed the shore of Ahakan before disembarking. Much opportunity, perhaps, but it turned out little time, for the mission was destroyed when all its members were killed by the Indians five months later. The only survivors were a boy, Alonso de Amos, and the Indian interpreter, who, in fact, led the attack against the unfortunate Jesuits. Thus ended the mission to Virginia. Soon after, all Jesuit activity ceased in the Spanish province of La Florida, which extended from present-day Florida to Newfoundland and which included the territory they called Ahakan. It is the story of the translator, known to his people as Paquiquinio and eventually to the Spanish as Don Luis de Velasco, that most concerns us. Our history of Paquiquinio begins in the summer of 1561, when the Spanish ship Santa Catalina blew into the mouth of the Chesapeake in front of a storm. Santa Catalina had been sent to the region by Angel de Villafañe, whom very attentive listeners will recall had succeeded to the command of Tristan de Luna's mission in Pensacola in 1559. The crew of the Santa Catalina did the usual thing, which was to round up a couple of young Indian men. Supposedly, they came on board voluntarily in this case, but have to say I doubt it. In any case, the Spanish perceived one of them, Paquiquinio, to be of noble rank, and the agent of the Santa Catalina, Antonio Velasquez, decided to bring him back to King Philip's court in Madrid. Paquiquinio would turn out to be a very remarkable young man. Paquiquinio not only learned Spanish quickly, but he turned out to have extraordinary social skills. He could charm and win over leading Spaniards and eventually persuaded Philip II to send him back to his people. Philip agreed and sent Paquiquinio to New Spain, where he would live under the charge of the viceroy, Don Luis de Velasco, while arrangements could be made to take him back to the Chesapeake. Let us consider for a moment what an astonishing thing it must have been for Paquiquinio. In 1561, probably around 16 or 17 years old, to have learned a wildly foreign language with no linguistical connection to his own and absorbed an utterly alien culture to such a degree that in a period of months he was able to persuade the most powerful king on the planet to send him home, when sending him home involved a lot more effort and expense than summoning an Uber or, or even buying a plane ticket. While in Mexico, Paquiquinio got very sick and was baptized because he seemed to be a goner. For his Christian name, he was given the Viceroy's, and so he, too, became Don Luis de Velasco. And then he got better. The baptism confounded Paquiquinio for a few years because, in the universal view of Spain's devoutly Catholic leaders, once baptized, Paquiquinio was at great risk of eternal damnation, if he fell away from God. This was not a small matter in the least. It was therefore important to return him to his home with appropriate clerical guidance. Fortunately, the charming Paquiquinio persuaded the Jesuits that what they really needed to do was establish a mission to his homeland. 
Conveniently, an ecclesiastical venture aligned well with the strategy of Pedro Menendez de Aviles, who was governor of Florida, founder of St. Augustine, and murderer of the Huguenots at Fort Caroline. To build a string of fortifications along the coast of La Florida to interdict French, and potentially English, colonies that might serve as privateer bases. So it was that after some backing and filling and another trip to Spain, by 1570, now almost 10 years after having left Virginia, Paquoquinio was on his way home. Now a bit more from episode 30 and back to Professor Grady. Five days after their arrival in Ahakan, Don Luis abandoned the missionaries and returned to his tribe, leaving the Jesuits without a translator. As the winter advanced, the Spaniards' situation worsened. Finally, in early February, Father Segura sent three of the missionaries to trade for corn with the Indians and try to persuade Don Luis to return and help them make conversions. Don Luis did promise to return, but he and a group of Indians followed the three missionaries and killed them on February 4th before they reached the mission. Segura and the rest, except for Alonso the boy, were killed by Don Luis and his companions at the mission five days later. The Indians then plundered the Spanish settlement, taking the missionaries' clothes and the sacred vessels for saying mass and ripping up their books and scattering them to the winds. Everything we know about what happened to the mission comes from Alonso's testimony, since the only letter had been dispatched two or three days before Don Luis defected in September 1570. The gruesome story of this Creole boy who had lived among the Indians for 18 months was so graphic that it became the stuff of legend. The dead Jesuits became martyrs, and in Spanish lore, Don Luis was a murderous traitor. The result was that neither the Jesuits nor the Spanish returned to settle the Chesapeake, leaving Don Luis's people free of European incursion for another 35 years, until John Smith and the Virginia Company expedition arrived to settle at Jamestown. The Indians of the region learned from that encounter, too. In addition to getting back Paquiquinio, who knew all about the Spanish and a fair amount about the outside world, they saw firsthand what Spanish violence could look like. In August 1572, a year and a half after the killing, Pedro Menendez sailed to the mouth of the Chesapeake to find out what had happened to the Jesuits, who'd gone silent. James Horn describes the Spanish reprisal, Menendez style. The governor dispatched a small frigate with 30 soldiers upriver to search for Alonso and take hostages. Following a fierce skirmish with warriors firing arrows from the shore, the Spanish anchored off the mouth of the Chickahominy River, where soldiers killed 20 and captured 13 Indians, including, quote, a principal chief. Using a combination of bribes and threats, the crew recovered Alonso and from him learned the story of the killing of the fathers. Menendez told the Indians with whom he was bargaining that he would hang all the captives if they did not deliver Paquiquinio slash Don Luis to him within three days. 
When the Indian prisoner released to carry the news did not reappear by the appointed time, the governor ordered the hostages to be hanged from the ship's rigging, in clear view of any Indians looking on from the shore. Literally as a parting shot, the pilot of one of the ships steered toward land as if intending to speak to a crowd of Indians gathered by the river. But instead, the soldiers opened fire, killing many. The fact that the Indians would suffer the hanging of their brethren rather than surrender Paquaquinio is evidence that he had come from an important family, or was now deemed too valuable to give up. This is but one part of a theory that has gained prominence in the last 40 years or so, that Paquaquinio slash Don Luis and Powhatan's kinsman, Opakankanaw, whose name means he whose soul is white in Algonquin, were the same person. Nearly as I can tell, Carl Breidenbaugh, the great historian of early America, pioneered the hypothesis in a paper titled Opakankanaw, a Native American Patriot, which he delivered at the American Philosophical Society in April 1980. More recently, James Horn, oft quoted by me for his work on the Roanoke Colony, makes the same argument in a book published only in November 2021, about six weeks ago, called A Brave and Cunning Prince, the Great Chief Opakankanaw and the War for America, it is, by the way, a bracing read and well worth your time. Now, there is no definitive proof that Paquaquinio and Opakankanaw were the same person. Other historians have certainly challenged the story. I'm in no position to pass judgment on the various arguments pro and con, but since the theory that Opakankanaw was indeed Paquaquinio explains much of what subsequently transpired between the English and the Powhatans, and because it is also super fun and interesting, we're going to adopt the Breidenbaugh Horn thesis for the purposes of our series on Jamestown and the Powhatans. The Spanish-Indian encounters of 1570-72 to 72 accelerated the consolidation of the tribes in the region of the Chesapeake into more complex federations. That process had been underway to some extent for 200 years, as the Algonquian speakers of the region came under pressure from encroaching Siouan and Iroquoian tribes and joined together for mutual defense. Consolidation jumped forward around 1570, when by a quirk of family succession, Powhatan inherited six small chiefdoms. These territories, headquartered on the site of modern Richmond, Virginia, formed the core of the Powhatan Confederacy at the time Paquaquinio returned after having been away in Spain and Mexico for 10 years. Now back to Horn. The rapid coalescence of the chiefdom just a few years after Menendez's, quote, chastisement of 1572, however, suggests a highly significant additional explanation. Given his experience of the Spanish in New Spain and Florida, an awareness of Menendez's determination to establish a settlement in the Chesapeake, Paquaquinio must have believed that the Spanish would return in force sooner or later. He was therefore likely an influential voice in Chief Powhatan's councils, arguing in favor of a rapid consolidation of tribes to confront the threat if it came. Separate clusters of chiefdoms would be unable to withstand an invasion and might be persuaded to join with the Spanish to secure exclusive trade relations and 
gain advantage over one another. The Spanish, after all, were past masters of divide-and-conquer tactics, as illustrated by their conquests in Mexico. Only a powerful chiefdom or an alliance of chiefdoms under the authority of a paramount chief such as Powhatan would be sufficiently strong to ward off an invasion force of Spanish ships. It was a compelling argument. As it happened, the Spanish were not going to return. Menendez would die in 1574, and his string of forts on the coast of Florida would fail by 1587. Only St. Augustine would survive. But the leaders of the Powhatan Confederacy did not know that. Their powerful kingdom built in a series of diplomatic maneuvers and brutal, brutal conquests over a period of 30 years would be there when the Susan Constant, the Godspeed, and the Discovery sailed into the Chesapeake in the spring of 1607. Forewarned and forearmed, Powhatan and Opakankanaw had made the Chesapeake Bay, fertile as it was, the toughest possible place to set up a new European colony on the coast of North America. In 1607, in comparison to the Spanish, the English were inexperienced and ill-prepared to settle the Chesapeake. To be sure, the English had been earning their colonialist merit badge in Ireland, but that was much closer to home and of familiar climate. Their only previous attempts in North America on the outer banks of North Carolina in 1585 and 1587 had famously and catastrophically failed. Indeed, the 1585 Roanoke expedition had reconned the Chesapeake, and the 1587 lost colony had aimed to go there. But devoted and attentive listeners will recall that the pilot, Simon Fernandino, had refused to take them any farther up the coast than Hatteras. As we have seen again and again over the last year, the Spanish controlled their colonial operations from the top down. In the early days, starting with Columbus, they would authorize explorer entrepreneurs to explore and conquer an area and put up some of the money, and the crown would extract a percentage of the proceeds, whatever that might be. Successful explorers would receive land grants and the authority to govern their territory, reporting up through a bureaucratic chain to the crown. That is how the Narvaez, Soto, and Coronado entradas were supposed to work. By the late 16th century, however, Spanish colonial authorities were taking the initiative rather than responding to inbound requests from entrepreneurs. The Luna expedition to Pensacola and the various programs of Pedro Menendez in Florida and the Carolinas were really strategic initiatives of the Spanish state. In principle, Elizabeth I took roughly the same approach as the early Spanish expeditions with the patent granted to Sir Humphrey Gilbert, which succeeded to Sir Walter Raleigh, but that did not bear fruit. By the time of James I, the English were decentralizing rather than centralizing and were thinking commercially more than geopolitically. And that trend would continue as the 17th century progressed. James Horn, in his book, A Land as God Made It, Jamestown and the Birth of America, summarizes the background of the Jamestown expedition and its key players, much of it review material for our devoted and attentive listeners. Quote, Precisely how the early Jamestown venture originated is unclear. Captain John Smith credits Bartholomew Gosnold, we heard a lot about him a couple of weeks ago on the podcast, 
as one of the first movers of the colony, having many years solicited many of his friends. Gosnold came from a well-connected Suffolk family, was known to Richard Hacklite, and had married a cousin of Sir Thomas Smith's. He had gone to sea initially as a privateer and then as an explorer. In 1602, he had made a highly successful voyage to the coast of New England. You guys heard about that and know that highly successful is somewhat open for debate. Where he traded with Indians for furs and gathered sassafras and cedarwood. It was he who likely involved his cousin, Edward Maria Wingfield, also from a distinguished family, who had served in Ireland and the Netherlands and knew Sir Fernandino Gorges, a fellow prisoner of war in Flanders in 1588. Wingfield was sufficiently important to be named as one of the patentees in the first charter, the legal instrument that gave royal permission for the settlement of Virginia. The third of the first movers was from a very different social background. John Smith was born in 1580 in the village of Willoughby, Lincolnshire, the son of a middling yeoman farmer. He was not cut out for the life of a farmer, however, and fixed his gaze on distant horizons. Like many footloose young men of his generation, he chose a military career. Fighting first in northern France and the Netherlands, and then with the imperial army of Archduke Ferdinand of Austria against the Turks in central and eastern Europe. After five years of many brave adventures, among which was the extraordinary feat of killing three Turkish champions one after the other, in hand-to-hand combat, he returned to England in 1604, a worldly and battle-hardened gentleman knight. Weary of war but casting about for a new adventure, he heard of Gosnold's efforts to raise support for a colony in America. With money in his purse left over from his travels, he chose to join the venture. Smith's well-annotated Wikipedia entry is even more graphic and worth a moment since he will loom so large in the next episode or two. Smith set off to sea at age 16 after his father died. He served as a mercenary in the army of Henry IV of France against the Spaniards, fighting for Dutch independence from King Philip II of Spain. He then went to the Mediterranean, where he engaged in trade and piracy, and later fought against the Ottoman Turks in the Long Turkish War. He was promoted to a cavalry captain while fighting for the Austrian Habsburgs in Hungary in the campaign of Michael the Brave in 1600 and 1601. After the death of Michael the Brave, he fought for Radu Serban in Wallachia against Ottoman vassal Iremia Movila. Botch that pronunciation for sure. Smith reputedly killed and beheaded three Ottoman challengers in single combat duels, for which he was knighted by the Prince of Transylvania and given a horse and a coat of arms showing three Turks' heads. However, in 1602, he was wounded in a skirmish with the Crimean Tartars, captured and sold as a slave. He claimed that his master was a Turkish nobleman who sent him as a gift to his Greek mistress in Constantinople, who fell in love with Smith. He was then taken to the Crimea, where he escaped from Ottoman lands into Muscovy, then on to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth before traveling through Europe and again North Africa, returning to England in 1604. If I were building a dream team for my foxhole, 
John Smith would be in it, along, of course, with Francis Drake. The Virginia Company Charter of 1606 provided for two colonies, the other being the Popham Colony, which my listeners know more about than most Americans. James appointed a Council of Virginia made up of 13 members to oversee the two colonies, some from the West Country group interested in the Northern Colony, and the balance from the London group invested in the Southern Colony, which would become Jamestown. The colonies themselves would be governed on site by subordinate councils appointed by the Virginia Council in England. As we saw last time, the Popham Colony, which would be much more productive and have a much higher survival rate in its 13 months than Jamestown would, failed because of the collapse of its leadership. The Jamestown colony would suffer from different leadership problems, but would ultimately survive, not really spoiling the story with that bit of news, because of massive infusions of men and supplies against almost overwhelming odds. This is a good place to stop this week. I've decided to aim for episodes closer to 30 minutes than 50 minutes on the theory that people are more likely to listen to the end. Next week, we will see what happens when the English arrive in Powhatan territory. By now, it will come as no surprise to any of you that nobody will be painting with all the colors in the wind. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time. <laughs>